You're listening to The Public Sector Show by Tech Tables, a podcast dedicated to sharing human-centric stories from CIOs and technology leaders across the city, county, state, and federal agencies, joining in the conversation and touching the hearts and minds of leaders across technology today. From mission-driven leadership to cloud, AI to cybersecurity, workforce challenges, and more, never miss insights from peers and vendor partners across the public sector. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to techtables.com and drop your email to subscribe. New podcast episodes come out every Tuesday and Thursday, along with weekly behind-the-mic newsletter. And one of today's podcast sponsors is Tech Tables Plus, an engaging new community where you can have early access to never-before-released episodes, early access to live event recordings, early access to weekly three interesting learnings, early access to live event ticket purchases, no episode ads, and more, plus three extra special bonuses when you sign up today. Bonus number one, access to the CEO show. Bonus number two, access to the Higher Ed Show. And bonus number three, access to the Digital Show. Join Tech Tables Plus today. As always, thank you for supporting the Tech Tables Network. And before we kick off today's episode, I want to give a big thank you to one of our brand partners who keeps this podcast free to the listener. Nagara is a leading provider of digital government services, partnering with state, local, and federal clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagara offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desk, cybersecurity, and more. Make sure to check out nagaro.com. That's N-A-G-A-R-R-O.com. Today we have Renee Wynn, former CIO of NASA and former deputy CIO at the EPA with over 30 years of federal government experience and now an entrepreneur and recent TEDx talk alum. Super excited to have Renee on Tech Tables. Renee, welcome to Tech Tables. Hey, Joe. Thank you very much. I appreciate being invited to talk to you about technology. And I think we're probably going to talk a little bit about space a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and who knows what else we're going to roll through here. So excited to be here, Joe, and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, look, I am very excited. There is a number of things that I was preparing for this podcast that I was noting down. So before we talk about cybersecurity and we talk about space, I want to talk about I want to talk about the Simpsons. And you might be wondering, how did the Simpsons make it? to tech tables. I am a Simpsons fan. I think it's hilarious. Mainly the older school ones. When I was a kid, my grandfather had this rule for your any birthday or Christmas gift. It was like had to buy a book and he would not buy me any video games. He was a professor. <laughs> and then I, he was like, all right, like, I'll buy you the DVDs of Simpsons. And, but for every DVD season DVD you get, you got to buy a book. So I've had my fair share. I'd watch the Simpsons movie. And then as I was preparing for this and we were talking offline, Right now, you were the deputy at the EPA, and I'm laughing and struggling because in the Simpsons movie, actually, why don't you tell the story, Renee? This is pretty funny. Can you please tell the story of EPA and your boss sitting you down for a team building exercise to watch this movie? Yeah, so we had just gone through a political leadership change at EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. And I had a new boss. It's, it had been a few months since the start of the new administration, but a lot of the seats were finally filled with the political appointees. I was the civil servant. And so I advised political appointees. I actually had been advising political appointees at EPA most of my career because there are a number of them. And many have always been so accessible to civil servants, listening, inviting them to talk to them and be part of delivering the mission from a political perspective, breaking the, the surface between being a civil servant and being a political appointee. So I was very fortunate to have that. So we had a team building exercise, which I didn't realize that at the time it was one of those show up, we've got to be here at this time, change your meetings, unless of course it's super important. Like if a state commissioner was in, you would proceed to have your meeting with your state commissioner or something like that. So we show up, I'm with my boss at the time, and we sit down and then the movie starts and I'm going, I'm just sitting there going, do I need to take notes? Do I, is there going to be a follow-up set of question and answer? How do I relax, enjoy the movie so that I know what's coming at the end? And he's just saying to me, just relax. I think this is for us to have some fun together, the new crew at EPA and get to know each other. I'm like, you sure? Because they're going to ask questions at the end. I got to be paying attention and making notes. He's like, stop just watch the movie and enjoy it. I'm like, oh, okay. 
So we did. We watched the movie. It was fun. It was funny from the perspective of at that time having at least more than two decades at EPA and having delivered mission. Watching this whole thing, a perspective from the outside about the EPA and that. So we did enjoy that. We had a great conversation afterwards. And I actually did end up getting to know a lot of the folks that I was going to work with, the newer team, which helps tremendously in the workforce is to know each other as human so that we don't make evil horns on them or do devilish tales on them just because they disagree with us. So it was a great start to a great run and turned out to be my final years at EPA before I left for NASA. Okay. So I love that. Yeah. The only devil horns we want to add on our the ones in the simpsons in a very comic kind of way but i love this so as i was preparing i was listening back to some podcasts that you were on and i think people in santa barbara thought i was like the weirdest person so i will stroll i try to be efficient so i'm strolling my toddler he's just passed out and i'm listening back to these podcasts i'm just laughing i got headphones on and every time the interview person would ask you a question and epa came up every time in my head i was like <laughs> so you can tell i love to have fun and it actually the name of my company is levity media right levity lightness fun this is where we love to have fun i was stoked that you saw the movie I, whoever your boss was he's got a pretty good sense of humor or old boss i love that's that is awesome that was the team building exercise that we're gonna watch this and I imagine he watched the movie and was like laughing the same way I was and was like, this is going to be a great team building exercise. Yep. Yes, it was. It turned out and it was actually not his staging. It was his boss and it was a she and she had seen it and she laughed about it as well. So we actually had some really good conversations afterward because it turned into conversations about what was going to be the priorities for that current administration at the time. So it was fun to be part of those conversations where these were developed and agreed to in order to help make help that implementation as a civil yeah. servant. Yeah, I love that. The other, the last comment I'll make on during when I was prepping for this podcast was it was a comment you made about going 30 years in the federal government, you're W-2, and then suddenly you're working with a lot of boards, a lot of companies, and they 1099 you. And you're like, first time you're like, what's a 1099? And I just love that reaction because it was the same reaction I had when the government was like, okay, quarterly, or my, the accounting people were like, all right, quarterly taxes are due now. And you're like, what? That, that was the first thing I got when I had first started being an entrepreneur. So that was, I was laughing about that. I'm sure you had the same thing. Oh, and you pay estimated quarterly taxes. It's not like an exact number. It's interesting. I learned that a very long time ago. My sister has always had her own business. And this is many years ago. She calls in a panic and she says, I owe thousands of dollars to the United States government because there's this quarterly tax thing I have to pay. And I went, I thought you had an accountant. Didn't they tell you? I don't know. They may have. I may have just ignored it. And I don't know. Because you know, when she's in the arts, she's in the, she's a prop stylist in New York City. It's actually an uh, Emmy-winning prop stylist in New York City. And so this was a little pre-Emmy. But you can get so focused on your art, your task, your craft, that all these other things around you happen. And if you're not, if you're not, how do you hear things that are new to you when your brain is buzzing at 100 miles an hour in order to perform your craft. So I learned it from that and her panic of having to pay thousands of dollars for her first, actually her second was due. And so she owed penalties on the first one. And I went to myself, note to self, quarterly taxes, should I uh, not get an earnings and leave statement anymore? And that stuck with me. And I would say it was easily 20 plus years ago where I learned that lesson. So. I knew right away that's what I needed to do. And I asked for help. Other people had done the same thing. So I had lots of conversations with people like, okay, what else do I need to know? The other thing, have a separate bank account. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And then you really felt it when the money was actually leaving your account. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. You don't realize, right, when you get having saved for retirement, eh, not from the beginning of my career, but fairly close to it. A, you just look at that bottom net. That's what you have to spend. And out at the top would come my retirement, all of this other stuff, health benefits and everything else. And then you get down the bottom. You're like, okay, that's it. This is what I have to deal with. I never paid attention to the top, except when you had to file your taxes and you're like, okay, how much did I pay in state? How much I pay in federal? Did I have a medical account? Blah, blah, blah. And now it's like, oh no, I am quarterly reminded of 
the check that I send to the state and to the feds and I'm going, wait a minute, what's going on here? Take advantage of our roads. I like our roads. I liked the fact I used to get paid. I still I get paid from the federal government because I'm a retiree. So I realize I am paying for other great things like the safe food supply, safe transportation, especially FAA and flying, which I'm getting ready to fly again here soon. So I'm grateful for what the United States government does for us. I am an insider, so I am biased, but I, as an insider, whenever I have my stake, I'm glad it's USDA inspected. I love that. Yeah, I, while I hate paying taxes, probably like every American citizen, I, having traveled across the world a lot, mainly before COVID, I am, yes, I am very grateful to be an American citizen. And although the state of California, where I preside, the state house there seems to pass a tax every other month. So I get a new, there's a new bill. There's a new bill. This is what, oftentimes I joke because I talk to a lot of people in different states and I'm like, oh man, I got to leave. I got to leave. This is why people are leaving California. So it's so gorgeous. But when you start seeing that top line and then you see everything, you start, you're like, wow, I got a whole new perspective on versus when you just look at that bottom number. And yeah. I think that was a, that's a big one when you're the owner. And for me, I'm the case, I'm the owner and an employee of the business. Yeah. It's like, I don't even this remember actually, how to spell all these words. Yes. A fascinating talk that I haven't done, but could be a great second podcast with you would be making that transition from a federal, from an employee on the government side to being an entrepreneur and owner. I think that could be a really fantastic episode, but we're going to leave that. It's been a great experience. I know we can do that one later. It's been a great experience. And I have to say, and this, I would offer this advice to anyone in any situation in their career, have your own board of advisors. And I'm not talking the technical ones where I'm on the board of advisors at Palo Alto Networks and Enteros, a supply chain risk, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your personal go-to people that you call or text and talk to about, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's what I'm going to, what do you think? What's been your experience? And I have to say the generosity of so many has been so wonderful, right? When you, all you read about in the newspaper is just bad stuff. And in real life, I just see generosity every time I turn around people helping other people to be successful. And that's really heartening to experience that. Yeah, I'll wrap. I'm going to wrap up on this, but I love what you just said there. Yeah, the newspaper, every newspaper just seems to echo bad news. But I found that there are a lot of people who are very generous with their time in a lot of different domains. And it's, it's, I think it is, it's, it's cool to see that's actually probably more of the reality is that there are actually a lot of humans who realize that it, the journey is actually pretty tough. And there's a lot of people there that are willing to want to help you out and, and pass along. I know I've had a number of people in my own life who've given me really great advice or take time out of their day to, to help me. So I echo that. So this is great. We're going to follow up on this. This is a fantastic podcast episode that I haven't met too many folks who in that position. So we're going to get back to that. All right. So today's podcast episode is sponsored by the Tech Tables Live podcast tour. We've hit Phoenix. We've hit Austin. We're heading to Raleigh. North Carolina next month on Friday, July 22nd. We're going to hit Sacramento after that. And we're going to finish the year in Tallahassee on Friday, October 14th. It's going to be a blast. I'm really stoked. Also, if you're in the public sector, uh, specifically on the federal side, you don't have to be, but I know a number of federal folks who are who have been asking, Joe, when are you coming to Washington, D.C.? And Samuel Navarro, shout out. He was talking, he was giving me high praise about you. We were at dinner in D.C. a couple months ago. And him, and then it started snowballing with a few other folks who want me to come to DC. So we're going to do a live podcast event in spring of 2023. So if you're not traveling, Renee, and anyone else listening, because everything's just open and everybody wants to go travel now, if you happen to be in DC, we're going to do this in spring of 2023. So we're going to bring the live podcast event to her there. I'm super excited. I'm not going to give away the place I have in mind that I want to rent out, but it's going to be super sweet. And there are a ton of promo videos on techtables.com. All right, let's kick off this podcast. This podcast, especially today, like I had shared this photo with you. You worked at NASA. I love that. I had the Lego NASA photo when I was at Legoland with my son, Jack. And so I had just messaged you. You were the first person that popped into my mind. And I was like, oh, I totally got to send this to Renee. And sent that over. I think that's online and people can see that. But I was kind of curious, like, how do you keep that childlike, curiosity for building and solving problems 
across your work at NASA in the EPA? Actually, where do you, how do you do that in a workforce and how do you do it in a managed way? Because everyone has multiple good idea fairies running around their organization, especially when it comes to IT, and they're pretty sure you have never thought of what they've thought of and they come to you with that. So I'm going to get to that in just a second, but I'm going to tell a lovely Lego story. So I swear we have millions of Legos in our house from my son who Legos too. We went to Legoland the week it opened in England. He was four, well, almost four at the time. So it really enriched the trip and his love of travel to be able to go to Legoland and enjoy it. And I, I find it so amazing to look at the creations for Legos, both the intended ones and the for fun ones. So big fan of Legos. I met the CIO for Legos about maybe seven, eight years ago. Great to meet him. And I said, all right, please put on the chalkboard to invent a Lego vacuum for all of the parents and guardians out there for the little tiny heads of all the little people and the little tiny plants please, we need a vacuum because it's hard to get it all up in a hurry. I haven't seen that vacuum invented yet, but what I did see is I see a huge partnership between NASA and Lego, the first women of NASA, sold out immediately. So very excited to see that. So from an innovation perspective, experimented and had successes and failures with respect to innovation. And part of that is, is operations. Operations in IT is full consuming, especially when you add the cybersecurity angle with it and customer experience piece. And they all, all those things roll together. So we tried to do is we had typical petting zoos, which a lot of places had. We had rooms in some of the centers. I'm going to talk about NASA in particular, where you could go experiment with technology in a safe, secure environment. And then you could figure out how that technology could be used to enhance the either mission support or mission side of NASA. And so you had to come up with a way for people actually to play with the technology instead of going out and buying that less license and listening to the marketing pamphlets that say, this will solve all your problems. So that's what we did. And the centers, they did this largely because they know what they need to serve in each center. And each center offers a very different aspect of mission either in space exploration or in, in aeronautics. And so that was a way to do that. And then a lot of times what they would have are open houses or they would do particular tech days associated with that. And those were wildly successful. It was also another way for the CIO shop not to always be seen as the, we want to take your IT over and you swear that we're going to break it or something like that. So it was a good way to build friends and listen and allow people to play with things before you bring them into your operations. Because when you bring something into operations, people believe you just let the software go like you do at home. It's very different in an enterprise solution. You need a product, you need a project team. You need to integrate it so that you get maximum benefit from it. Um, and then it needs to match your ecosystem with operating systems and NASA has pretty much every operating system. So then you have to do testing to make sure that the people that want to use the software can actually access that software, depending upon the computers that they use. So it's a lot more complicated than it is at home. Yeah. I love what you thought, said about the safe rooms and being able to, I think there's probably some lightness where you're not like actually deploying this in such a, in a live environment, almost like a sandbox environment. And, and I like that. And I think what I was really getting at, and you probably saw this with your son when you took him there when he was a kid, I'm sure he's much taller now, was like, when I look at Jack, it's so fascinating to me on when he's building Legos. Like, there's certain things I see, like he's deeply focused. He's sometimes there's an instruction manual, sometimes there's not. And then if there's not a manual, you see him and it's the wheels are turning and I love that illustration because he's like trying to solve this problem. And for him, typically, he's like a big Star Wars fan at three and a half. And so for him, it's he's got these like semi between Duplo and an actual Lego. And he's like building like a Darth Vader with a little ship, and which is just so funny. And you can see the wheels are spinning and he's trying to put all the pieces together. And I think like when we're in technology organizations, I think having that curiosity and that desire to like solve problems is super beneficial. And even trying that out in a safe space and you, I won't recap it, but you, you had a couple of really great interviews where 
you are talking about when you deploy this, for example, into space, it's not, oh, you're not just deploying this the first time. You are, people are having to constantly beat up the technology, try and break it, do everything you can. So by the time it's act, it's go time, you're ready to go. I really love that. I had this interview with at one of my live podcast events with Tim Romer, who's a state CISO in Arizona, and Nancy Ranisak, CISO in the state of Texas. I don't know if either of them, but there was a comment that was made. And the comment was that cybersecurity is homeland security. I think the governor of Arizona had said that, which had got me thinking during an interview. I believe you had said like cybersecurity is national security too. And, which I really liked. And so while I know most folks value the importance of cybersecurity, I think it's always really great to hear from people who are on the front lines. Like, how do you explain the importance of cybersecurity both on earth and in space? You do it by telling stories. I have not met the the people that you've just mentioned. And so maybe someday I will, but it is national security and it's national security for the United States federal government and anyone connected with them, which includes states. It can include local government. It can include small businesses because small business administration, it includes the rest of the world. And I dealt both at a world global as well as off the globe in terms of access to NASA's network. So why is this important? So on the East Coast, a lot of people may have heard about this. But there was ransomware on a pipeline, a computer that ran a pipeline. Pipeline is part of critical infrastructure. In this instance, it's related to the energy sector. So when we have a loss of energy, in this instance, we reduced gasoline around, and in the summertime, even last summer, people were doing a lot more moving around by cars. And all of a sudden, there was no gas there was no gas available within a 10 mile radius of my house. And then I refused to sit in line because I'm going to be polluting and burning the gas. So I was like, you know what? We have enough. And there are people that need to drive as part of their jobs. I need to get out of this line and make sure they can get it. Now, it's not everyone else's approach, but I'm perfectly content staying at home or riding my bike places. So let's talk about critical infrastructure. Your water supply is run by technology. Your safety associated with global positioning systems is operated by technology, including technology in space. FAA has technology, safe landing, which I'm about to fly again. I'm looking forward to a safe landing. I'm planning on it actually. And so what we forget is technology has for a very long time parts of our lives, it's a daily impact. Satellites are part of our daily impact. And one of the things I try to do is and provide stories to help people understand how space is part of your everyday life. GPS, I've already mentioned, if you're trying to get from here to there, you're using GPS to do it if it's an unfamiliar place for you to go. You want the food delivered to your door, and let's say you can't drive, then you really do want these delivery services. It's a actual lifeline for you to get food because you can't go somewhere, maybe because you're sick or incapacitated, both temporarily or permanently, these things come to your door. They come to your door because of GPS, and that's brought to you by technology as well as satellite. Ships and airplanes are also managed through GPS systems, and we have a lot of uncrewed vehicles. I don't say unmanned, because it's unmanned, I might still be flying it. So we'll call it uncrewed. And that way there isn't a human on that vehicle, male, female, or however one identifies with it. It's intended to be respectful of a multiple gender identification by just calling it uncrewed. So it is a national security issue. We are facing changes in our national security posture because of cybersecurity, as well as the, what I think is going to be soon, the proliferation of use of uncrewed vehicles. An uncrewed vehicle has been used to deliver an organ during organ transplant. Talk about a life-saving event that uses GPS that was flying and delivering an organ. And this was back in 20, the fall of 2019. And so T is part of our lives. It keeps us safe and we have to make sure that we protect it. Yeah. The safe landing piece, it, cra it cracks me up. And the reason why I always laugh about it is when I was younger, I did something crazy. This is at this point over 14 years ago. I was flying to Europe, but I passed through Moscow because you buy the dirt cheapest ticket you can. <laughs> and I had like a 72-hour layover in Moscow that was all in Russian at the airport. 
I couldn't leave because as an American citizen, I just thought you show your passport. This is like a 20 year old version of me. They just don't let you leave because some countries you're fine. But in Russia, that was not happening. So I was stuck at the airport. And so I had to take out a bunch of Russian rubles, which by the way, are worth next to nothing or they definitely were worth next to nothing when I was there. So I've got this stack that you would think is like an insane amount of money. It might be $20. Like, <laughs> and I'm just dumping cash to eat for the 72 hours I'm stuck there. But when you land, everyone's clapping. Like the pilots are, everyone's clapping. I'm like, why is everyone clapping? They're like, we're clapping because we landed safely. <laughs> and it's like, I just get, I forever just have, cannot get that story out of my head. It is like the funniest thing. So when you say safe landing, I remember Moscow and then I never flew Aeroflot again. <laughs> I don't want to have to clap that, that the plane landed safely. So anyways, great story. We have a question from the audience on LinkedIn. This comes from Alex Humphreys from Sneak. He says, with NASA or any agency, what emphasis is being placed on cybersecurity in regards to app development? And how do agencies plan to use next generation products to assist? We know it's a huge emphasis, but what new tech will be leveraged to help achieve the mission and stay secure? Any thoughts you might have? Yeah, so I had the distinct honor and I am, I'm grateful for it, but boy, I remember the day very clearly when I'm sitting in the administrator's office and we were visited by the first ever federal CISO and he comes in to basically tell NASA that they need to get their act together. Their cybersecurity posture is a risk for the United States government. And we are at risk of being cut off of electronic communication with some of the other federal agencies that NASA does a lot of work for. And I'm just sitting there. I knew about it because I got the heads up call, explained what they're going to do. Did I have anything? It's because good courtesy is when you got to deliver bad news, make sure the critical parties or the people that you're going to be relying on to implement, they are perfectly aware of what you were about, what about to land in your lap. And so I went to the meeting and I heard what I was expecting to hear. And the administrator at the time, Charlie Bolden, who I'm so delighted that I still get to work with at, uh, since I retired and he retired as well. Turned to me, great, we will get this fixed. Turned to me, says, go make that happen. Now, mind you, I had not been at NASA but a few months. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a huge agency. It is global and off the globe. And so you, I was like, okay, we're just going to get started. And it, and I started with by digging into the data and really beginning to understand the agency because the first thing about technology is its people first and foremost. There, there is, you could have the coolest technology that solves the problem, but if the people don't want it or it doesn't actually solve the problem you think it does, it's not going to be accepted. And if you've already bought it, it's just going to be a waste of money and waste of compute space and that. So we did a couple of things. And one of the things is to understand about NASA and I've testified with this is I say NASA has both good legacy and bad legacy IT. And we can fix the bad legacy IT, but we cannot fix our good legacy IT. We will do what we can to address cyber risks and mitigate them, but we might not be able to mitigate them to a risk level that is acceptable. And we will just have to accept that risk. For example, Voyager, which has actually been in the press quite a bit lately as they're making some changes on data coming back to try to continue to preserve the information we're getting from millions of miles away. And that Voyager's not going to get a system upgrade. It's not. It's been, it was designed in the late 60s, designed in the 60s, launched in, I think, 1972 or roughly in that time frame. We're not fixing it, but what we can do is with its ground systems, make sure that the ground systems are protected as much as possible where Voyager and other systems that are not just of that era, let's say anything launched from the 90s backward in your history books, they're going to be the older technology. Cybersecurity space is already really challenging as it is. It's a very harsh environment. Like solar flares can just take stuff out or create problems with trying to communicate or things like that. So it's a harsh environment. So anything launched from about the 90s backward would be hard to do upgrades. And we did a full assessment of the systems using FISMA. We understood where all our red was, and there was a lot of red. And we just started marching down the basics going for the, with the coalition of the willing and getting 
pieces addressed. We knew where our big risks were. They were far more complex than people, I think, realize in space systems. But maybe if I say space systems, they realize it's probably pretty complex. And we just started marching down the path. And it took about four years to go from high risk when I'm saying high risk, that's just very kind words to say to managing the risk. And then ultimately I got a lovely text from my former team the day the IG agreed with NASA in terms of all the other mitigations, both policies and all that were taking place. And so the IG even agreed that NASA had finally done a lot of work to start and manage the risk associated with operating here on terra firma, as well as operating in space. And before we get to our next question, I, I want to do two more things. One is remember we operate in Russia and I've been there. I've been to the Moscow airport. I did get out of it, but I'd also <laughs> been to Kazakhstan for the launch. And so you're operating in on communication technology systems that you don't you have a sense of what's going on with it. And so you have to do projection when you backhaul the data back to the United States for use. It just depends on where it is and that. So when we deploy technology, it needs to match the ecosystem. I talked about good legacy IT. These are old Unix systems, Linux, old XP systems, Microsoft, and we have to secure all of those. And so some of the newer things don't go backward very well. And so you bring the technology in that's going to address the biggest portions of your risk, and it's going to be a risk-based decision. And at NASA, they're making risk-based decisions on a regular basis. You don't fly humans top of power. That is risky proposition. Um, and so what you do is you learn what your risks are and you mitigate those risks as best as one can. And they do an excellent job for human flight. I don't want to ever imply that one, but understanding your risks and then getting the processes down and then bringing the tool that solves the issue. And NASA does a lot of code development itself in there. And they were, as I was leaving, they're beginning to do SEC DevOps type and taking a look at cybersecurity and the code management that they were doing. So NASA was beginning to understand the importance of cybersecurity and different ways to address the risks and mitigate the problems. That's fantastic. Let's go back to the cyber posture. You said you had only been at NASA for a few months. How long did it take you to assess what was it going to take? Did you spend six months? Did you spend three months? How much time did it take for you to assess what you were going to do to come up with a game plan to make this, to make the adjustments and the changes? So it's an iterative process. So the first thing you do is the CIO is like, what about your technology? What about the stuff you're operating and fix your home first? And that was the easiest place for me to begin to make that shift and show the way by being the way. And, and then in 2017, with the help of some folks from the mission, they led this effort. We did a complete evaluation using FISMA of every system in NASA associated with that. And because we had some real focused time on our own mission, on our own mission support systems, we were pretty well suited not completely, but well suited to start the conversation to make the changes in the mission areas as well. And I would finally say, so I would say a good 18 months till I felt we were rolling at a fairly good cadence. Because remember, we still have operations. We still got to fly our missions. You still got to launch. You still have to do all these things while you're trying to I would say fix or improve the posture of your baseline. And so you just it's a make a, advances every day. And then my final thing is never let a crisis go to waste. We had a couple of crisis moments, pretty significant. And I would say it got the attention of some folks that from my perspective, weren't hearing what we had to say. Maybe we weren't using the right words. Pretty soon they were looking at us going, okay, we get it and let's get rolling. And let me tell you too, there were places in NASA that were already in really good shape for cybersecurity. So when I found them, I went and got to know them and what they were doing and made sure that my team knew who they were. So we would have partners that had sensitivities that we might not have and that we had could share our stories with them. They could both be a helper, a teacher, and we could be a helper and a teacher for them. So it's first and foremost, it's about the people. I would say it's a good, if you think about NASA, right? There's probably now maybe 200 missions flying in space. 
I, I don't know the exact number. I should probably brush up on that, but it's well over a hundred. You think about all of that's in space. All those have ground systems. And so all of that has to be protected. Data is brought in around the globe. So you have to protect that. And we operate in environments that are challenging. And so you have to think of different ways to do that, to mitigate the risk. So find the risk, come up with a plan, mitigate it if you can, or do other protections to reduce the risk as best as one can. Yeah, I love that. Uh, you said never let a crisis go to waste. And I think COVID is an example. Obviously, there's a lot of pain associated with that. and then, But there was also an opportunity when you look at, I think, especially on from deploying digital services side specifically. And I think seeing how governments could move very quickly and just and actually just break a lot of I think it's going back to it's all about people sometimes it's a mindset shift where I think a lot I heard oh, it would have taken me two years to get this done mm -hmm. and it got done in three days and so then I'm always thinking now as we come back it's like they start asking the question what's on your plate now that you think can take two years that you could get done in three days if someone lit a fire and you had to do it yeah that's how i think i am a go hard charging i also coach high school basketball so i see it with the jv and the varsity basketball team and every year when i have new jv guys for the most part they have to learn there's another level of speed and typically I have to be the guy lighting the fire underneath them. It's honestly, it's a little me and it's really them getting whooped by the varsity team on a consistent basis where you're like, they come to me and like, all right, coach, we hate losing by X number of points. We want to actually compete with the varsity team. So I see that with different governments, but as far as not letting the crisis go to waste, I think there's a lot of really good stuff that, that came out and you're seeing a huge shift from, and the impact of technology on the economy also. A lot of folks working from home now, which I think is really great. You said you were riding a bike, like just, I love that, getting outdoors, more people being healthier. So I think there's a lot of really great opportunities, work and a personal level. I think so too. And you have to be careful because humans can really accelerate and deliver in a crisis moment, but they can't stay there. So you have to find the places, what's the right cadence and yeah. recognize to care for your people so that they can maintain the right cadence and everyone's right cadence is different and everything's a team sport. So the right cadence is really how the teams come together to deliver and then step into the crisis, but you got to step out of that crisis. You cannot operate in crisis mode without significant, probably loss of staff because people learn, no, I don't like this. Or worse would be people's health really taking a dive on that one. And then their effectiveness. You also have to deal with effectiveness. If people are under crisis mode too long, they their aperture closes and because just the way the blood and the brain and all of that works, they're going to make mistakes and those mistakes could be costly. So you got to find the right part. You also have to encourage people to hone their own craft, not on their own time, but they have to hone their craft. Just because you're good today doesn't mean you're still going to be the same good tomorrow. So they have to have time to be able to go to the craft. And I'm sure your basketball players, I, I was one of those dreaded basketball players. I'm like, yeah, mean, I have to shoot every single practice all during the season, 25 foul shots. I was like, oh my God, I'm so bored. But then you get bored and get to run suicides. Like, great. That's not what I was thinking. Let's just play. And the coaches balance between playtime, playing and teaching that muscle memory so that your skill in the game actually gets better because you don't have to think about it anymore. So you build that muscle memory. Of course, you had to improve your endurance. And that's why we always had to run those little short sprints. Yeah, there's a couple of things, again, that you said that are just so great. Can't operate in crisis, 100%. I almost think about it as like a, more of a sprint, rest, sprint, rest, sprint, rest. This is why I go to Legoland. And that's actually, I think maybe for a lot of adults are like Legoland. There's no way that's relaxing. I'd go to Disneyland where I can have a beverage in hand and <laughs> walk around. But Legoland is, there's a lot of really fun. It's relaxing. You got kids seeing their build. It's a fun time. I go to the gym. I've got a Peloton. I'm going to yoga. There's a lot of stuff I think is super, super important. There's a lot of really great research on just the value of exercise, on just recovering for your mind. And I probably walk 
with my wife, six to eight miles a day. When I'm in town, that's what I'm, that's what I'm walking to be able to, and oftentimes uh, uh, my wife, she doesn't walk me for two miles. So we'll talk for two miles, do a little loop, drop her back off of the house. And then I can continue on. And then I'm listening to podcasts and, and then Jack doesn't want to take a nap. I throw him in the stroller and like any kid in a car seat or in a stroller, they're out in five minutes sleeping. It's a great way to get some exercise and listen to Renee on some other podcasts while prepping. So ton of fun. And then yeah, going th- that effectiveness, loved that. And then yeah, honing your craft. I think treating, honing your craft super important and taking ownership of your craft. And and for me, I feel like, yeah, I'm a creator first. I have to do a lot of other things because it's a business now, like any creator who it first starts as this, like tech table started at, it didn't start as a business. It started as just a podcast and I was interviewing people and then along the journey, it just grew and transformed. But same thing, honing your craft, getting better, figuring out how I could present better, ask better questions or, and, and anything you do. And same thing, going back to basketball, I put that same mentality on the guys who want to play because the JV level, I know every level is a little bit unique, but the JV level is you've got the team and maybe four or five guys are really going to chase and move up to varsity. And so as my coach, it's at coaching them. It's like really trying to instill that the guys who play varsity, they're the ones working out afterwards. They're the ones taking shots afterwards. And it's competitive in high school. There's maybe three or 4,000 kids that go to the high school I coach. And so you have a lot of people trying out. You've got football players trying out, baseball players, volleyball players, and there's only 12 spots. Someone's going to try and take your spot. It's like you got to constantly hone your craft. So I love that. You know where in Joe too, for the, the teenagers, because we were talking at the varsity level that don't make it, there's much to be learned in that. Failure to get a position on a squad is okay. And one piece could be, sure, let's work on your foul shots or your ball handling and that. And other times it isn't a good fit for your skills. It might be something that you want, but it doesn't mean that it's a good fit for your skills. And I think it's important to take the time to say, how come I didn't make it? Get that feedback maybe from you or something like that. And then secondly, say, maybe I need to go a different direction with my sport if this isn't going to work for me, or maybe I need to work harder, but use a chance of rejection and it hurts, be comfortable in the yuck and then pivot. What does pivot mean? It could mean a different direction and that's okay. Or it could mean maybe I've got to improve with my ball handling skills, my shot skills, or maybe it's my defense skills. How am I in the paint? Use every rejection to figure out how to be a better you and use that as what is the version of a better you. Like I avoided, I was in, in high school, I was in a lot of the higher end math and science classes. It was a natural affinity for it. And I intentionally didn't go into engineering because I didn't want to hang out with the, I was practically the only girl in these classes. And I didn't like that. I wanted to be with other females in my classes to, you know, feel the same. You're in a high school, right? Yeah. All you want to do is feel the same and loved and valued. You don't realize that's what's driving you. Plus these really weird hormones. And I, <laughs> it. and I went, I got a bachelor of arts in economics and yes, now you all know, but it's on my LinkedIn anyway, so you can see it. And I went back into the tech field. And went into a tech field after being in a policy field. It it isn't just hone your craft, know what you like, know what you're good at, and just exploit what you're good at doing and see what you can make of it. And sometimes when you're good at something, you're tired of it. So go find another thing to do. Yeah, that's really great. When we talk about failure, I don't think we talk enough about failure and things like that. But let's go back to high school. I actually was cut by my JV high school basketball team. And so I never actually played JV high school ball and I never played varsity basketball. Now every year is a little bit different and you go back and look and I thought, and I played on some traveling teams and I was like, I think I'm pretty good. Now I have the perspective looking back, the team that I played on that year was just so stacked. One guy went to the NBA, four guys went to go play D1, D2. And sometimes you just hit a cycle where you're like, no matter how good I am, I'm just not that good. The irony of the situation is that the varsity coach 
is still the varsity coach today. He actually was an incoming coach when I was in high school there. And, and he ended up hiring me as an assistant coach. So let's just take all this full back circle. This is 20 years later. I come back. I'm now, or 15 years later, I come back and I'm assisting the JV coach. And, and he had played D1 basketball at UCSB here in town. And I learned a ton. Then he's not able to coach. So the next two years, I become the head coach for the JV basketball team. And I realized I had a wow, wildly different perspective now that I brought because now I'm not only the coach, but now I understand when tryouts happen, I had to then cut, cut kids from the team. So now I'm sitting here in the chair going, I'm thinking of myself. I go, oh, I would have cut myself too. What? Oh, totally. And I didn't understand that perspective, but talking about failure can be good going back. I loved it, but I realize now I have a lot more fun coaching than I do than I did when I actually played in high school. And just to show the team how good I am, I will still get out on the court to play against the JV and varsity guys because none of these guys are going to the NBA. So I and I can bully them around a little bit because I'm a man and they are boys and they don't have man strength yet. But uh, as they get a little bit, the seniors are a little tougher right now because they're really taking it. But I have a ton of fun. So I love that you brought up that comment on failure. And it's great too, that you notice the difference between being in the arena and the weight on your shoulders and the decisions, because it really is a different moment and you need to rise to that challenge. It can be uncomfortable sometimes. Absolutely. And it's funny we're having this conversation about sports because I'm reminded today is the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And I am old to have felt the benefits of Title IX. I loved sports as a kid. I played sports all in my neighborhood, but when I went to school, I couldn't. They weren't there. When I got to junior high, they gave us field hockey and I played one game of that. I threw the stick at the coach and I'm like, I'm sorry, girls, <laughs> sticks are painful. I am not doing this. And so I switched into soccer and that, and then I just moved around sports because at least then in my lifetime, sports were now being offered to girls. And this has made a huge difference for women. And I think society in general, you have a whole class of people that believe they can do something because they were allowed to enter the field. Before that, we were told we couldn't do that, which was weird because I'm like, I'm playing basketball, street ball with high school, all ages, male, female. I'm picked on the team. I'm playing it. And then I get to school and I'm like, well, no, you can't. And I'm like, but I can't. What do you mean? I can't. I can play basketball. You're just maybe, I think what you're telling me is you won't let me play. And all that changed in my lifetime. And it was, it has been true for people for their entire lifetime that were born much later than myself. So sports are a great lesson in life. Coaching is a great lesson in life. Playing are great lessons in life. Um, and you do need to hone your craft. You also need to know maybe when it's time to let things go and go on to other things as well. And I think I just do a shout out to June 23rd, 1972, Title IX of the National Education Act made it possible, frankly, for me to play sports, which I love. And for the generations to follow me, we now have professional leagues for women to actually pursue what they are good at in their craft for a lifetime. So not leaving someone behind is a great thing. Yeah. And I think, see, I've got my daughter, Annabelle, right here in the corner. She also loves basketball. I love seeing her in so does Jackman too. I know. I just leave, I just bring them to the court. So they, it's actually fun to see them in the stands. And then they bring, especially now she's going into eighth grade and they will bring, she will bring all of her friends who are in junior high uh, to the game. And uh, it's fun to see them there. And then also see them when some of them play on their junior high team getting out there. So that's a ton of fun. I love it. And I did not actually have June 23rd memorized for title nine. Now I do. Now I won't forget that. So I, I, I am excited. About <laughs> yeah, Joe, when you get told you can't, the day that, that I can't goes away or you can't goes away, it becomes pretty memorable even to a young girl at that time. And I've seen what it's done for a lot of young women. I've seen what debate can do for lots of kids, what your robot classes and robot clubs can do for so many. Being involved, being part of a team, being valued with it, hones your craft. 
has some disappointments, which teaches you how to persevere. All yeah. it's basically life. It is life. It is life. It is the whole the can't thing. I've got a couple of other right here is uh, where is it right there is my wife's degree from Stanford and she's got a great story. She is a uh, half native American, half Filipina. I think if I got that right, babe, when she edits this podcast and she's my kind of behind the scenes editor and she was told she can't go to Stanford. She wouldn't be able to make it. And anyways, she's got a great story. And I love that, that inspiring story. And it, it does build perseverance. I have agencies who tell me Tech Tables is not big enough to interview their state leaders or their federal government leader. It just isn't big enough. And I'm like, I just sit there and I'm like, okay, no worries. And because I've seen it to enough where if you keep putting in the six months from now, a year from now, they'll just come back. And I have this since we're on the podcast. You can't see it up here, but... One of the most valuable things you can learn in sports is persistence. Yeah. So I've got a giant persistence. So yes, no, uh, I think it's a great poster to have. Yeah. So this has been great fun and we didn't even get into space, but you promised me that I could come back. And so we can fill in more of the space stuff and we can talk about all sorts of different topics and I could keep going on sports as well. I played sports for quite a while. But we are nearing our end. We are. Where can people find you? Where can people find you? I know we went over. Where can people find you after this podcast? LinkedIn is the best place for you to find me. LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you, Renee. Appreciate you coming on Tech Tables. Yeah. Thank you. You take care. You're listening to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables, a podcast dedicated to sharing human-centric stories from CIOs and technology leaders across the city, county, state, and federal agencies, joining in the conversation and touching the hearts and minds of leaders across technology today. From mission-driven leadership to cloud, AI to cybersecurity, workforce challenges, and more, never miss insights from peers and vendor partners across the public sector. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to techtables.com and drop your email to subscribe. New podcast episodes come out every Tuesday and Thursday, along with weekly Behind the Mic newsletter. And one of today's podcast sponsors is Tech Tables Plus, an engaging new community where you can have early access to never-before-released episodes, early access to live event recordings, early access to weekly three interesting learnings, early access to live event ticket purchases, no episode ads, and more, plus three extra special bonuses when you sign up today. Bonus number one, access to the CEO show. Bonus number two, access to the higher ed show. And bonus number three, access to the digital show. Join Tech Tables Plus today. As always, thank you for supporting the Tech Tables Network.